Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. Good morning. Welcome to Elm City. My name is Albie, one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, Anyone seen the weather for next week? Is anyone, I saw a five, and there's another number after it, so things are looking pretty good. Um, Very excited, so it's just going to be a big tease, though, and then come back, and (laughs) I know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, away with that bad spirit. (laughs) Uh, Before we get going, though, I'd like to open us in prayer, and this is uh, a prayer we did last week, and we'll probably do do it more And I I really like it, and this is how it goes. It says, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we pray, that we might be grounded and settled in your truth by the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. What we do not know, reveal to us. What is lacking within us, make complete. That which we do know, confirm in us. Keep us blameless in your service. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So a few years ago, I stumbled across a guy, his name's Mark Scandretti, and he founded something called the, the Jesus Dojo. Now, this is not a uh, like Christian karate school that combines Cobra Kai with Bible verses, although that would be awesome, and I would totally sign up for that. Uh, it's actually kind of like a church that he started, and the reason why he called it the, G- the Jesus Dojo is because, in his opinion, learning to follow Jesus should feel a lot more like learning karate than sitting in a college classroom. And as I was kind of listening to how he laid it out, I was like, I really like that. I mean, we're a church whose mission is to practice the way of Jesus together. Uh, Dojo means place of the way or a place where you learn the way. And uh, the earliest followers of Jesus were actually not called Christians. That kind of came a little bit later, happened a couple of times. But the earliest followers of Jesus, you know what they're called? They're called followers of the way. Because following Jesus and learning to follow Jesus actually is a whole lot more like the hands-on experience of learning something like karate than it is sitting in a college lecture class. Um, I promise I'm not gonna start calling myself Sensei Powers. Oh, that sounds way cooler than pastor. Um, There's actually one time, there's only one time in my whole life where I felt like a sensei. So when I, was in, uh, when I was in seminary, one of the cool things about seminary was how diverse uh, my classes were. We had people from all over the world that would come and study there. And one of my friends, he was, he was from South Korea. He was a little bit older. He was a retired uh, military guy, and he lived on the golf course that my team practiced at. So I would often trade golf lessons for Korean food, uh, especially, you know, most of Jordan life. I never found that I liked kimchi, but Korean barbecue, oh, man, delicious. So one day, I showed up at the driving range. I thought I was just going to be giving him a lesson, but it turns out he brought his family and extended family. So there was like 10 people total, and they kind of all lined up, and at one point, and it's not a huge driving range. He like says something to them in Korean I don't understand, and they all get at attention and bow to me like I was their sensei. It was awesome. <laughs> the whole driving range is looking at me like, what is going on? That has nothing to do with Philippians or our sermon. I've just been dying for an end to tell that story one day. <laughs> uh, but Jesus, Jesus, he was a first century Jewish rabbi, and all rabbis had disciples. 
And what a good rabbi would do is they wouldn't just dispense information. It's not necessarily like a lot of your college or high school professors where you'd sit in, learn from them, and just pass the class. You know, what a, disciple, what a rabbi would teach his disciples is a way of life, often referred to as his yoke. And so uh, even, you know, here's a couple of verses where Jesus talks about that. He says, come unto me, take my yoke upon you. Um, that was a common way of take on the way of life that I'm going to teach you. And so probably our closest modern-day equivalent to what a rabbi-disciple relationship would be would be apprenticeship-style learning. So you want to become a plumber, or you want to become a plumber or an electrician? Like, for sure, there is classroom learning. There are certain things you need to know to pass your code classes, but you're going to spend a couple of years, hopefully, apprenticing under a master electrician or a master plumber, getting all this hands-on experience because there's just certain things that you can't learn in the classroom. There's just certain things that to actually learn it, it has to go from a book to actually doing it. And that's sort of what it's like with what we're, even what we're, what we're doing here. What you're going to learn from Scripture, this is the place where you're kind of learning about it, but you're not actually living out your life of following Jesus, much of it, here. Like, what you're learning here is then getting put into practice the other 167 hours of the week. Um, some, you know, you can have some sleep in there, here and there, which is also a very, a very godly thing, sleep. But discipleship isn't just, you know, and following Jesus as his disciple isn't just going to a bunch of meetings in the same way that, you know, becoming a master electrician is just going to a bunch of classes. Like, there's definitely an important piece of it, but learning how to be a disciple of Jesus is lived out in the ins and outs of everyday life. And that is uh, what Jesus taught his disciples, and that is what Paul is doing with this church here in Philippi. As we go through this book, we're, we're coming to the point where Paul is going to be helping them understand what it looks like to live out the way of Jesus in every area of their life. We, I like to define um, a disciple here at Elm City Church, or kind of our working definition of what a disciple is. It's this. Uh, someone who is intentionally following Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, and then is practicing the way of Jesus together with others on mission. Um, I, you can define it other ways, but I think that's a helpful definition to frame when we talk about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. When you see the word disciple used in Scripture, I think that's a way, to, a way you can frame it. The disciple is someone who is intentionally following Jesus. You know, you, you don't become an accidental disciple for the most part, in the same way you don't become an accidental marathon runner. Like, we wake up in one day, I'm like, oh, check it out, I'm in shape. No, it takes, I wish, I've been waiting for that to happen for two years, it still hasn't happened yet. It takes intentionality. And through that process of intentionality, of intentionally following Jesus, the Holy Spirit works on you, you start to become more like Jesus. But this isn't done on its own, you do it in community with others. So a disciple is someone who's intentionally following Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, and is practicing the way of Jesus together with others on mission. And like I said, we're getting to the part of Philippians where what Paul is going to be doing is going to, he's going to be looking at a bunch of different scenarios and helping them understand what does it look like to live out the way of Jesus here? What does it look like to live out the way of Jesus here? And so the specific part of what we're looking at in 127 through 30 this morning is what does the way of Jesus have to say for how Christians, how churches should respond to opposition and persecution? That is, the, that is what 127 through 30 is about. And so Paul is going to give this church some instruction and us some instruction on what a Jesus-shaped response to persecution and opposition looks like. So let me read for you. Um, uh, we're just, I'm going to read Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I'm going to start with just 
verse 27, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And what we're going to see as this kind of gets played out is Paul is going to tell, tell this church that the way of Jesus calls us to respond to opposition and persecution with unity, with courage, and with perseverance. For those fans of the Mandalorian here, this is the way. So look at the first part. Whatever happens, live in a way that displays your unity. Verse 27 says this. We talked about this mostly last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, it's, have you ever noticed that different people and cultures are known for different things? So I went to school in Virginia, and I learned firsthand what Southern hospitality was like. I was like, oh, that really is a thing. Then I lived in Boston, right outside Boston for a couple of years, and I found out that Boston drivers are really a thing. And I became one very quickly. And 10 years later, I have not lost that, lost that habit. Uh, have you ever maybe gone to try to order like a bagel shop or tried to order bagels in New York? In that area, like you better know what you're going to order when you step up because the fast pace of life applies to everything there. Like you, you, you'll quickly get booted out of there if you're just kind of, hmm, I don't know. So my question is, what are things that followers of Jesus should be known for? Like what should our peculiar culture look like? Um, for sure, uh, we should be known for being loving, generous, and forgiving. But according to Philippians 1.27 and really so many other places in the New Testament, the first quality that should characterize followers of Jesus is our unity with one another. This is everywhere. What should the, you know, what should the unique culture of Christianity be? Well, one, it should be unity. It should be unity among believers. I just look at how many allusions are packed into this one sentence. That we are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. Like, it's like he's making his point by saying it four different ways <laughs> in one sentence. That unity should be so important. Um, and that's not, so unity is not uniformity. Sometimes you hear that, does that mean we all have to think alike, vote alike, agree with, ev- no, that's, if that was unity, you'd have very, very tiny churches of just you because probably you were the only one that agrees with every one of your convictions. Um, unity, though, is not seen in that we agree on everything fully, but unity is seen in our commitment to each other. The early church was united, and that unity was seen in all of the ways they lived out the one another commands of Scripture. There's 59 of them, uh, 59 specific ones that are, you know, love one another, bear one another. It goes, goes on and on. Our unity for each other is seen in our commitment to each other. Uh, Maybe if you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about, did a lot of background on, on Philippians, on the town of Philippi. And one thing I mentioned was it was basically the Florida of the Roman Empire. You would go and retire there. And a lot of uh, Roman soldiers would get to go and, re- and retire there. And so what Paul does in this next part, I'm trying to kind of get this point home, is he uses a military uh, metaphor that they all would have gotten. So when he says... Because you all have the same Holy Spirit, I want to see that you are standing firm. This is an image of Roman soldiers with their shields. So I'm going to kind of show you a picture. So this is, this is a super high quality picture I know that I, that I found. But it, it gives you a good idea of the way Roman uh, shields and stuff were designed. So for a unit of soldiers, you would provide a ton of protection for each other because it was, it was designed in a way that you were protected if you stayed as a unit Stayed together. You were protected from all sides. 
there was very few uh, places where an arrow or something like that could get through and hurt you. So, which kind of begs the question a little bit, uh, why did they have to do that? Because they expected opposition. You wouldn't, you wouldn't design anything like that if you didn't expect that you would kind of be attacked or wouldn't have to have this design to be united. Um, Paul is never caught off guard when he or some of his churches are facing opposition or persecution. This never comes as a surprise. Like, oh my gosh, what are we doing wrong? He kind of feels like he expects that and that comes with the territory. So he uses this metaphor that they all would have known and gotten seen in action, telling them, whatever happens, when you're facing opposition, when you're facing persecution, this is what I want to hear, that you are unified, that you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that you guys have each other's back. Because what, what is the easiest way, like, if you, in that, like, the way that you become in danger personally is if you're looking out for yourself, if you're not unified, if you're not, like, you become much more easy to pick off. But as a united group, that is, there's, no, there's a lot of security in there. So that's why he is kind of hammering down um, on, on this. Because here's, here's the truth. A church that's doing its job should at one time or another expect some opposition. There's just no way around it. A church that's doing its job and is preaching the gospel should expect some pushback and opposition. And hopefully, the pushback and opposition they're getting is for the gospel and not whatever thing that they're doing that has nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, too many times we confuse that with persecution. It's like, no, you're just kind of not being a good neighbor. You're not being like, that's not specifically persecution for the gospel. But churches that are sold out for the gospel should just expect at times you're going to face some opposition. But here's the key thing to know and what we, we'll, we'll see um, Paul in Ephesians 6 brings it up, is that we should, that our enemies in this opposition are not those we disagree with. Our enemies are not those out in the community that are Christian, that even might be persecuting us for our faith. Those are not our enemies. Those are the people that Jesus says you're called to love. Because what does he tell us to do with our enemies? In the Sermon on the Mount. There's a four-letter word that really stinks when talking about your enemies. What is it? Love. Yeah, we are called to love our, love our enemies. So when it's talking about this, this, this persecution and expecting it, it's more this Ephesians 6 thing where Paul brings up this metaphor again. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly place. Translation, be aware of the schemes, the playbook of the devil, because there is a spiritual battle going on for people's souls. And again, our battle is not against our, our unsaved neighbors or unsaved friends, those who might be even persecuting us. That is not, our, our battle's not against that. Paul says that, we are, that there's a cosmic battle going on that we are ultimately involved in. And one of Satan's greatest schemes against the church is disunity, is discord, is infighting. You know, he, if, we're, if we're just spearing each other, if we're putting our swords down and fighting each other, he doesn't have to worry about it. His, one of the biggest tactics that disunifies the church is infighting and is not being unified. So we are called to be united. 
But more specifically, we are called to be united around the gospel message. And that is really when it talks about here, and it says we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This means we are committed to the content of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is a good savior who died for sinners. The gospel requires us to be committed to this message of unity. And as I was thinking, okay, our situation is not the same. I brought it up last week. The persecution they were facing was very real persecution. Uh, in contrast, anything we might face, it's very light. Um, and in America right now, other places across the world, not so much. They are facing real, uh, real persecution. But I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, what are some of the biggest threats to our unity in the church right now? And I was drawn to a, um, I was drawn to a Tim Keller interview because there, I was thinking, first I'm like, okay, what, uh, what are some threats to unity in the church? And I'm like, well, right now, what isn't a threat to unity? Because the church is made of people, and the end thing right now is for everyone to not get along. So it's kind of like, all right, what's the, let me go down the list. But Keller brought this up in an interview, and I really resonated with it, especially after the last six months. He says, you know, when asked, what do you think is some of the biggest obstacles or threats facing the church? And he said that he thought it was the increased politicized, uh, polarized political culture we live in. So they think one of the biggest threats to the unity of the church is the overall polarized political culture that we're living in. And that is like seeping in, and it's a lot of churches, it's tearing, tearing, tearing it apart at the, at the seams. Um, one, you know, like not all conflict is bad. I think some of the conflict that's coming, it's issues that are brought up that need to be addressed. And I think there are some things worth fighting over. There are some things even worth potentially even breaking unity over. So I'm not saying we gloss over any of these, any of these difficult issues. But he was, he, was, he, he was picking up on something that I've heard so much. It's that too many fathers of Jesus, you're letting your politics direct your theology and not the other way around. You're letting, you're, you're letting your politics direct your theology and not letting your theology in, in, inform your politics. Um, and I, and I, 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 we all can be guilty of this, so I'm not trying to stand on this high, high horse and be like, oh, I got it all figured out. We all, and, and the reason I know that is because we'll talk, I'll hear discussions around certain issues, and I'll listen, and I'll be like, I know you're really passionate about the way you're saying that, but that, that just does not sound like how the Bible talks about that issue. That sounds like how your party talks about it, but that does not sound like the way the scripture lays, lays this issue out. And we can just get so discipled by our culture that we don't even know that our views are in some ways like in direct contrast to the way of Jesus. Um, he brought up four things, and I think this is, this is great, and this highlights it. He goes, he goes this. Because when you read the Bible, you see four, four things clearly. And I give the caveat that the Bible is not just about these four topics. But he says, when you read, you see these four things clearly. One, Christians ought to be deeply sold out for racial justice. Next thing he says you see clearly is that Christians should be deeply concerned about the poor. He says, also, Christians should be pro-life. And finally, he says, Christians should believe that, at least for Christians, that sex should be between a man and a woman in marriage, the biblical sex ethic. He goes, guess what? Two of those are going to sound really conservative, and two of those are going to sound pretty liberal. But I think the Bible's pretty clear on all four of those things. And if you're kind of towing those, depending on your party line, it's going to be really hard. So here is my 
um, just what our what we're going to have to do. It doesn't matter where you line up in this in the spectrum of of politics. As a follower of Jesus, there are going to be parts about your party that you're going to have to speak prophetically against, and it's probably going to be different on that. But you are going to have to, and. Th- so moving forward, and you think that might sound that might sound that might sound impossible? Is this you? Can you even do this? Listen, Satan would love nothing more than to separate the church over over politics, um, but we cannot let our our lens for our convictions be our party lines. And here is why I bring this up: talking about the way of Jesus. Jesus did this. It's amazing when you look at the diversity. It's almost comical, the diversity of the political spectrum of the disciples. You could not bring a more diverse group of people together. You had Matthew, who was a tax collector, basically a sellout for big government who was oppressing people with too much taxes. You had Simon, who was a zealot, and the zealot party was basically a group of anarchists that would try to overthrow the government and assassinate Roman Roman officials. You had Peter, you had these fishermen who were basically the small business owners that didn't want Big Brother on their backs taxing them, and then you actually had Matthew, who was the tax collector, who would have been taking the taxes from all of these fishermen. And you know what Jesus does? He puts them all together in the same group and says, hey, guess what, guys? Get along. Hey, hey, guess what, guys? I have a mission for all of you, and it's going to be bigger than any of this. And you know why he was able to bring them together and why they went out and changed the world? Because they were committed to the message of the gospel. And that was so much greater than any of these other things that they had before. Like, I guarantee they would have, we don't have all the recorded conversations, but there's no way. They're 12 normal people. There would have been some infighting. They would have been mad at each other about this stuff. But when God gets a hold of them, when they, got, when they had this bigger vision encompass them, they went out as people committed to the gospel, as people unified, and as the people who wrote the New Testament that had all of these one another commands in it. And the few times that you start to see them stepping out and not doing it, like they called each other on it. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul called out Peter because he was involved in kind of some racist activities by only eating with Jews and not Gentiles because he was kind of embarrassed and because of that culture thing. And Paul calls him out really strongly and says, when you do that, you're almost negating the gospel. They had no tolerance for it because they were committed to the gospel above all else. The commitment to the good news of Jesus can break down any barrier that would normally divide us. But here's the thing. We have to be that committed to the gospel for it to happen. This will not happen if we're just, you know, a little bit committed. Or, if, you know, or you can just kind of confuse the, 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 the entirety of the good news of Jesus with just, like, only the plan of salvation. Like, the good news of Jesus has something to say about your eternity, but it also has a lot to say about the here and now. That's why it's called good news. So the way of Jesus calls us as his followers to unity, seen through commitment to each other and being sold out for common mission, but it also causes, calls us to be brave in the face of opposition. Verses 28 says, Paul goes on and on, writing to this church, says, don't be frightened of anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So the second way we can live out the way of Jesus when facing adversity is through living bravely. Because there is a quiet confidence needed to not be terrified in the face of adversity. 
I think about Jesus at his trial. He was completely in control. Uh, bad things were happening to him. But it's, not like, it's almost as if you're sitting there, and in his response, it's like the Romans and the, and the Jews, there in charge, but not really. Because he, it's, you read it through, it's like somehow this is the guy that's in charge, even though he is the one being unjustly tried. And you see that with Paul, what we talked about two weeks ago. He's in prison. He had to be the most maddening prisoner. It's like, you're, it's like if you're a parent and you have a kid and you go to punish them, and you're like, you know what, you just need to go to timeout. And they go, you know what, hey, hey, hey dad, thanks. Because I was just thinking that I, I could use a timeout, so I'm really glad that you did that. Because Paul's like, he's in jail, and he goes, hey, you know what? If, you, um, if I get released, that's awesome. If I don't, oh, well. Because like, you guys can't really do anything to me because my, my, my eternity is secure. Like, he, he had this quiet confidence because when we face conflict, we either want to go fight or flight. We want to go fight or flight. If someone, if we feel oppressed at all, it's like we want to just, like, just prove that no one, no one is going to like, put me down. Like, I'm going to put you back in your place. Or you're going to want to like, get in your shell and just run. That's the common response. But the way of Jesus allows us to live in the third way of just quiet confidence. We're not running, but when Jesus says things like turn the other cheek or like don't be afraid of anything in your oppressors, it's, it's one of the most powerful, brave things you can do because it, it just, it's what, what it's, that's why Paul says here, like this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation. And it's almost like this guy knows something I don't. Like, the way he's responding shows that I think he's on the right side of things and I'm not. You know, what did the Roman soldier, at one of the, if you're familiar with the story, the Roman soldier at the cross, after going through the whole thing, saw the way Jesus acted, and he goes, surely this man was the son of God. Because he displayed this quiet, brave uh, confidence. And the final thing that this passage says is the way of Jesus calls us to perseverance. It ends by going, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this is a kind of a tricky phrase when it says it's been granted to you. It's the word charizomai in Greek, which has charis at its root, which is the word for grace, and uh, which grace is God's free, unmerited gift. So here's the thing. Everything about this passage that we're called to do would be impossible without God's grace, uh, without, without God's power at work within us. But look at what Paul says. He goes, it has been gifted to you, not only to believe, not only is faith this gift, but perseverance is a gift, that you've also been given the gift of suffering on behalf of Christ. And I don't usually look at that as a gift. That's kind of like, can I re-gift that at the Yankee Swap? Like, I don't think I really want that one. Uh, but he's saying, you've been given this gift, not only of belief, but of perseverance. Because the strength that you need to faithfully persevere is also a gift from God. It's God's gift to us. Faith and perseverance are both gifts that flow from God's grace. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.